Hey there, welcome along to the final Olympic special from the High Performance Podcast in association with Lotus. And you have not heard a conversation like this with anyone on the podcast so far. I guess there are small snippets you're going to hear which you can relate to others, but I don't think any athlete has come on this podcast and spoken quite like this since we started. It was an absolute pleasure to speak to this young lady um, today. We're in conversation with Johanna Conter. I like talking. I like sharing my experiences. I, I've been very open in in the work that I've done with Juan, with 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 you know people in the past, especially on the mental side. And I think I don't I don't have any hang-ups about sharing. Pain times resistance equals suffering. So if I'm in pain, let's say at a ten, but and I'm you know resisting at a ten, my suffering's going to be a hundred. Yeah. But if my resistance is zero then my suffering's zero i don't like it when i think you know you hear these hyperbolic words of like kind of they've completely lost control they're you know they're they're out of it or you know let things happen let things move um but for sure for me personally i needed to find a space where i could channel and could start re reorganizing my thoughts when I became stressed or when I became so-called emotional. I think what's really important to, to mention at this point, of course, is that um, Johanna Conta didn't go to the Olympics because she sadly tested positive for coronavirus just a few weeks before the game started. Um, and I guess we all live a life where we're constantly basing our opinions of ourselves on our work performances or external factors and external successes and if I'd have seen most athletes mention that one of the biggest moments of their careers wasn't going to happen just a few weeks before they were scheduled to do it I'd have been really worried for them um, but as you hear in this conversation with Johanna Conta she has spent a long time working really hard to get herself into a space mentally where she really can accept anything that happens to her and you're going to hear why and you're going to hear the tools that she's managed to attached to herself to do that but it's also a reminder that the sports people that we talk to exist in this world of highs and lows and whether it's Johnny Wilkinson on this podcast saying that winning the Rugby World Cup is no more important than the washing up because if it was no longer being a rugby player would mean that he's less of a man or whether it's the Arsenal defender Hector Bellerin coming on the podcast and saying you have to be like a candle so whether the world is up or down around you your flame is steady it's a reminder that Johanna Conta has to be exactly the same because it was a real blow for her that she wasn't able to go to the Tokyo 2020 Games. When we sat down to have this conversation with her, she was all set and ready to go. Um, but no one really knows quite what's around the corner for any of us. And it takes us back to that same old conversation about being process orientated, not outcome orientated. So Johanna Conta knows that she still did everything that she could to make 2021 a year to remember. But when it came to the Olympics, it just wasn't to be. Anyway, as you know, without Lotus Cars, these Olympic specials wouldn't be happening. And I just want to put on record um, to say to Lotus, not just for the bike they designed for Team GB um, that powered us to so many gold medals, but for the fact that they wanted us to do these Olympic specials purely to have really in-depth conversations with Olympians so that you at home for free could hear this podcast and take those lessons. I think Lotus deserve huge credit for that. So thank you very much to Lotus for their continued support of high performance. You can find them at Lotus Cars across social media. But right now, let's get straight on with it. It's time for 
another and the final Olympic special in association with Lotus Cars from the High Performance Podcast. Enjoy. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Roy. Joining us today, a woman who operates daily among the elite, the best in Britain at what she does, and a product of a life of sacrifice and commitment. But what made her focus with such clarity on her goals as a child? How were her early years shaped by leaving her parents to focus on her chosen sport? What have psychologists added to her armoury? And when times are tough, what gets her through? It's an absolute pleasure to welcome to the High Performance Podcast, Johanna Conter. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. It's quite the intro. It makes me quite nervous. Oh, you'll be fine. Listen, <laughs> you've had much more nerve-wracking things than a high-performance podcast interview <laughs> over the years. So let's get going then. And our first question always is, what is high-performance? In my mind, high-performance is finding your own 1%. It's finding your own... The, the best that you can be within yourself. And that's regardless. So it's basically your own PB, really. It's regardless of, of who you're competing against, what what your job is, what what your passions are. It's, it's, it's kind of honing in on your elite self. And I think elite doesn't just apply to sportsmen and women. It applies to every walk of life, depending on what you do. I love the conversation about the extra 1% because it's it kind of reminds me that so many people go around thinking they're giving it their all but they haven't been opened up to this sort of extra 1%. Can you remember when you realised there was more to come, the difference between good and elite, the difference between the 1% and the, the non-1%ers? Um, I think it's it's finding that combination between working hard, but also working right. I've always been a hard worker. I've always um, understood that I needed to sacrifice. I needed to dedicate myself to, to what I do and, and, and give it my all to give, you know, to have the best shot at succeeding. Um, but I think sometimes with hard work can come tense, tensity and you can become a bit paralyzed. You can become a bit more stressed. And I think it's almost then understanding that you're doing the best that you can, but almost adding a bit of relaxation into there 
And I think that's when you start opening yourself up to working the right way, both hard and applying yourself, but being productive and and actually, I think, starting to build on on what you build on to to be successful. Now, you said really casually there, Joe, that I've always known that you have to work hard, you have to commit, as if that's obvious to you but for a lot of people it isn't so how did you come to that realization I think I was maybe quite fortunate with my upbringing um my dad's a bit of a workhorse and for as long as I can remember my dad's worked in the hospitality business and their you know holidays are not that simple they're every Christmas every Easter every every holiday he was working he was working long shifts long hours and so um you know, we'd get up extra early in the morning because I'd go with him to work before he then dropped me off at school. So I saw the kind of life that he lived and it was nonstop and it was hard work. And so I think I was maybe exposed to that quite early on. So when tennis came into the picture or my passion for tennis, I I think I saw that as the blueprint for how I apply myself to what I do then. Um, so yeah, I think maybe, yeah, dad was a bit of an influence on that. (laughs) I'm sure I read somewhere that you were about nine years old, eight or nine years old and you decided I'm just going to be the world number one tennis player. Yes. That's that's quite (laughs) a goal to set yourself (laughs) at quite a young age. Like (laughs) my daughter's still not sure what she's going to be doing. Um, Um, so talk us through that. That's amazing. I started playing, yeah, about eight years old. I was seven, eight years old. And um, I started playing because the school that I went to had after school care. There's a club right next door. They picked a a group of us kids up, took us there. Mum and dad both worked full time, got babysat for, you know, a couple hours. And during that period, I started playing. I did enjoy it then. So actually, I didn't like it. And and to this day, when I ask mum and dad about it, they sometimes say, yeah, I would ask, do I have to go play? And they'd always say, well, no, but you'll you'll need to go do something else sport was always a big part of of our family and it, it was something that they wanted me to do for a hobby for physical education right. so that was that was staying um anyway I somehow still ended up going to play um but then mum and dad entered me into some weekend competitions like kind of at the club where I was practicing right. and and then I started to play and compete. And that's when I fell in love with it. And that's when I became hungry for it and kind of, oh, this is really good. And then I um, I think I've lost my train of thought there. What was your question? No, well, you're exactly on it. I mean, I was saying, where did it come from? It well, sounds yeah, to me like what you're saying is it was actually, it wasn't the playing tennis that No, it was the you. competing. The competing. Mm. No, is, for that sure. That is interesting. Yeah, no, definitely. Because it was, I think, what gave it purpose for me. Um, I think for right. me, training without purpose is a bit boring, tiring. Training's hard. It's painful. It's exhausting. And it, it, I, I'm not one of those people that necessarily might do it just for just for laughs, really. Um, so I think it gave that purpose of, oh, okay, I now need to go practice because I want to be better. And then suddenly, you know, became conversation around dad was like, okay, well, if you want to, you know, become good, then we need to go train. And I was like, okay, we'll go running every, every morning, 5am, let's go running. And so before we, he'd go to work and then drop me off at school, we'd always then start running. Um, and that was you driving that, that was, so your dad yes. was nurturing it, but that was you setting yes. that fire. Oh, dad was completely on board. That. I think, I think I'm, I'm the son my dad never had. So he was fully on board <laughs> with like <laughs> me being um, all active and, and, and loving sports. So yeah, no, he, funny story though, at the start of our runs, there was this little hill. Yeah. And we'd always go around a big golf course. Um, this was when I, we were living in Sydney. And how old are you now? Nine, ten. And how often is this happening? Uh, every morning, probably five times a week. 
Brilliant. Yeah, like school mornings. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure every morning I'm a dad. And what time of the day? 5 a.m. <laughs> yeah. I'm just thinking about getting our kids out of, <laughs> out of bed for school. I'm like, loving it. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. But we, we're running up this little hill and I remember dad always used to like, okay, we'll race up the hill. And I was like, okay. And I'd, I'd sometimes win, I'd sometimes lose, but you know, I was like running so hard. Only now, maybe a couple years ago, was I thinking of that. And I asked my dad, I'm like, there's no way a 10 year old girl beats her like 30 something, 40 something year old dad at sprints up a hill. I'm like, did you let me win? He's like, of course. I'm like, <laughs> like I'm so betrayed. I'm like, my whole life's been a lie. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, I still to this day think of that thinking, why did I think for a moment that actually a 10 year old girl Love can it. beat her dad? And I really did. I thought well, I what did. What were you thinking at five to five in the morning? when you're having to climb out of bed like what was the what was the end of goal at that point was it because you have as you said you don't enjoy training so it wasn't going for the run that was like woohoo yeah um to be honest I don't remember all I remember now as an as an adult is those are some of the best memories of my childhood um just we'd always set the goal of running to the top of that golf course for sunrise and for me, just having that kind of father-daughter time, like yeah. spending that time with my dad, running, like, you know, just that physical exertion, beautiful kind of sunrise, like something to aim for up there. It's honestly, it's some of my, my most fond childhood memories. What was it that that was lit in you? Was it the idea of beating other people or beating yourself that really lit a fire? To be honest, I don't know. Um, I don't know. and And... I just remember even now, kind of again as an adult, thinking back on what that felt like to compete. I just remember being on court on, you know, these synthetic grass courts with like the sand on top. That's that's what I started to learn on. And I just I just see myself playing these matches and 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 trying and just trying hard. And at that point I didn't understand the difference between trying hard and, and trying right kind of thing. Yeah. And I just remember just wanting to win and wanting to yeah, probably beat the other person and come out, come out the victor. That's I think that's what fueled me. And what were your parents like if ever you said, oh, "Do you know what? I don't fancy getting up today. I don't fancy training today. I don't really want to take part in this weekend's tennis tournament." Ooh, I don't know. I think, I mean, there were a couple times when I was a young girl actually where um, where I didn't want to do it, and I remember, I distinctly remember one competition, and I must have been, I'd say, maybe ten or eleven. And the night before I'd been at a friend's house, um, I had a sleepover and during the day I was playing in the pool and stuff and I think I was quite tired. And they were the ones that were taking me to this tournament and my dad was gonna come collect me at the end. And for whatever reason, I don't know, I can't remember, maybe because I was nervous about the match, maybe because I was tired, a combination of the two. I went on court and I, I basically gave up the match. I said I felt ill. I said I, I had a stomach ache. And I remember my dad turned up. He took one look at me. He's like, you have no stomach ache. Then you're done. Like, we'll stop playing right here. Because, you know, you don't just give up. You don't just yeah. for no. So, and he, yeah, we got in the car, went home. I think he put my rackets away and I cried. I cried, I think, for, I mean, to me, it feels like days and days, probably weeks. It was probably like maybe an afternoon. I don't know. But for me, it was like world ending. Yeah. And 
I think I must have done convincing on my dad and must have just like, please, please give me another chance. Um, but so obviously I started playing again. I don't remember that part, but I just remember that moment when I was a young girl on, on giving up and why I should never give up and why I should never just throw in the towel and, and kind of leave. And how vivid is that memory even now when you're playing on court at Wimbledon or in New York? How vivid does that memory still? It's not at the forefront yeah. of my of my mind. I, I understand the value and I know what it means to be struggling out there, but I also know what good things can come in just staying there. So whether it's going right or wrong, just staying there, mm. knowing things aren't permanent, knowing feeling stress or feeling anxiety or happiness or joy, anything, it's not permanent. Nothing's a permanent state. So I think that as an adult, I think probably comes from, you know, learning that lesson of, not giving in a towel because you never know what can happen when you stay there. That was probably a shaping experience. <laughs> Definitely. So there's a fascinating line that you, again, you use there where you spoke about trying hard and then trying smart. Mm. So what age was it that you made that distinction in terms of if you were going to commit to tennis and competing and progressing? What age did you realise that you were going to have to go all in? I think I, I realized that very early on, on about going all in. I think when I was about eight, nine years old, I decided, you know what, I love this. I want to be number one in the world. I want to win all four Grand Slams twice and I want to win a gold medal. Like, And were you just encouraged at home? Great, go for that. Yeah, I think I was encouraged to dream. I was encouraged to imagine something big for myself. Um, but I was encouraged to do that through understanding that I would need to put in the work to be able to achieve that. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was never just dream about it and, you know, it'll come and it'll be practical steps I'd need to take to be the best that I can be. But I think you need the dream in the first place. I think too many yeah. people, either with their kids or on their own, they don't allow themselves to have that big dream. And I reckon without dreaming of being world number one or dreaming of, you know, winning a grand slam or whatever, you probably wouldn't do it. You no. wouldn't have got here. Well, no, but I think it, it is dreams that that actually I think also give us a, a roadmap essentially for what our passions are. It's, it's, it's what do you see yourself doing? What, what do you imagine? And it, and it can change. It's not everyone who dreams of being an astronaut becomes an astronaut and, and things evolve, but it gives you ideas. And I think that's what you, from childhood, you kind of take into adult life of, okay, what, what are my passions? What, what kind of brings light into my life light? So yeah, no, I think dreams are very important. So how important is perseverance then to go with those dreams? Because no tennis player gets to where you have in a linear way. There's, there's low times as well. So can you talk to us about perseverance? Oh, perseverance. I mean, I think perseverance is, I would say, generally an asset. But I think sometimes it's also doesn't help as well, depending um, on kind of where you are in your career. For, I mean, for me... I persevered, I'd say 95% of the time because I just, I knew that this was what I was meant to do mm -hmm. and what I was, I was destined to do, born to do kind of, I, I was going to make it. Um, but then 5%, I think, is persevering because you don't know what else to do. Yep. You don't know what life is outside what you've done for the last 10, 15, 20 years. So I think... You don't always choose perseverance. I do think sometimes it chooses you or it's easier to just stay and just keep doing it. Um, but I'd, yeah, 
I think that's probably perseverance for me. It's not that inspiring. It's a bit depressing. <laughs> but so, it's vital, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, so how do you come now to realise that sometimes you might be flogging a dead horse or you might be persevering on the wrong endeavour or the wrong task basically how do you make that distinction I think through time and experience I think through my career especially until I became kind of what is I guess in mainstream known as successful um, Mm -hmm. in 2015 I mean I had every reason to quit I mean I was uh, in 2015 I was 20 turning 24 years old I'd made it a little bit to about 80, um, but I was generally um, ranked between 100 and 200, about around the 150 mark. I wasn't making a living. There was, I guess, no big reason for me to keep going. Um, So I think there it was, I think, more the dream and more the perseverance together. How close did you come to knocking it all on the head? Not close, just because every time it came into question of, okay, should I stop or, I don't actually always didn't even come into question because I just, I remember distinctly crying on my bed with my mum there. And I mean, it sounds so embarrassing to say, but I just remember just telling her like, I just know that I'm meant to be famous. I just know that I'm meant to be known and and yeah. and be 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 one of the best at what I do. And I just it was like I think that childhood probably like child was probably crying as an adult of like yeah. why isn't that happening for me? So it never actually was an option for me within myself. And what did your mum say? In that conversation, I can't remember. Right. I can't too busy remember. Sobbing and I think I was too busy crying. just crying. Yeah, literally, I can't remember. I think. But it, generally, were you encouraged, or was there anyone ever saying to you, "Well, maybe you should start thinking about you're 24 now, maybe life beyond tennis"? No, I'd say I was always encouraged. I'd say I was encouraged to decide for myself. I think. Yeah, I definitely was never told to keep going or told to stop. I think it was always there of, what do you want to do? Um, And so I just kept trying. (laughs) And do you think you were upset because you were trying to live up to the expectation that that eight-year-old girl had of, you're going to be world number one and lift all these trophies and there you are at 24 and it hasn't happened? Um, I think not so much about the dream. I think by then the dream is also muddled with all the sacrifices that comes along the way, not just my own, my parents. Um, my parents left their lives in, in Australia. Mm. They racked up a load of debt moving over during the financial crisis while they both lost their jobs. Like it was, it was a whole family dynamic of sacrifice and knowing that having for me I felt personally responsible for that and so I think it was trying to deal with my dream and what I hadn't yet achieved coupled with well we're also in this state because of me and what what we decided to do for me so I think it's it was kind of all of it together more than anything it's a real reminder isn't it that when someone walks onto a tennis court or when any professional athlete competes in their chosen sport, look at all the things you carry at that moment. You carry the thoughts of the eight-year-old, you carry the sacrifices of your parents, the hopes of your grandparents and your friends who you know are watching on screen back home. So how do you channel all of that and block all of that out? Because it's not healthy. You don't play better tennis for all that baggage. You play worse, don't you? So what's the answer to to dealing with that? Um, 
Well, I think that's where I got very lucky. Um, I got very lucky because that's when I was introduced to Juan Cotto. Yep. Through him and my coach at the time, Esteban Carril. And it was during that period that we started to peel back the layers of of anxiety, of of um, responsibility, of, of, of guilt. I think guilt is probably the biggest one. Um, and start finding the root of why I play. And, and that's when I think the dream came back into it. That's okay. where kind of I play because I fell in love with this sport as a mm. young girl and I decided to dedicate my life to it. And whether I make it, I'm, you know, using quotation marks, whether I make it or not, um, it's actually irrelevant to that part because I, you know, I'm here and I, I, I'm trying to do the best that I can. Yep. And I think taking a lot of joy and pride in me doing the best that I can, I think that's what started then alleviating the guilt and, and that side and actually started making room to become a better tennis player, to become a better competitor, to study the game, to learn the game, to to actually maximise what I have as a as a as an athlete. Would you say that you then started to love winning as opposed to fear losing? Was that a distinction that you began to make? I think so, but I think more than anything, I just started to love playing, and I started to re actually almost fall in love again with the different things it offered me um a, an outlet of my competitiveness of my curiosity to improve my desire to learn and i started enjoying that process i think process became a very big trigger word for us it was about the day in day out process in and and yeah enjoying that that process <laughs> so had you had you worked with anyone from a psychological perspective before you met Juan yeah I think um, kind of through the Australian Federation at the time and even maybe come when I came over I'm sure I'd I'd met with someone at the at the LTA as well I think psychology and sports psychology has always kind of been around um, for me um, I think I came at the point where it started becoming more yeah. popular but I think it was more in, yeah, it was when I met Juan where I actually, I found someone um, who just spoke to me in a way that I understood mm. and I could grasp and I could use practically. So could you give me an example of that then, Joe? Um, so it was kind of with him that we started first establishing a routine as well um, and accountability for the, the things that I was doing. So we'd, I'd, I remember I'd always read every morning the Optimist's Creed um, and if probably pushed hard enough, I probably could recite it still because I read that Come on, for give years. Us a bit. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> um, and it would be things like that's when I started using Headspace. Yeah. Um, the app yep. Headspace, and that, and kind of getting a practice into that. Then I think it was also working through different worries. So I'd start. I'd start. That's when I started writing. So writing down kind of what I was stressed about, and then there was a formula to that in in writing writing down what I was struggling with. Um, bringing all the reasons in why that was okay, why that was normal, then bringing all the reasons in why it could be grateful and and why actually everything's okay. And it's almost like a a game plan for yourself with whatever you're struggling with on that day. And it was this kind of habit that we built. And I think 
that started, again, uh, creating space for me to then play when it came to on court. We get a lot of people talking to us about the struggle of anxiety and the baggage that they carry. And it, it seems to me like Juan kind of unpicked a lot of things from the past and realigned things in your mind. But almost more than that, it sounds like he kind of said, look, it's okay to have anxiety and struggle and fear and to carry all of this. But you can also carry it without being impacted by it. You can you can live with it. Yeah? Yes. Yeah, I think it was it was understanding that actually whatever feelings that I'm feeling, whatever, um, however overwhelmed I feel, I'm actually fully equipped to deal with it. I'm yep. fully equipped to live through it. And I think it was with him that it, we, we also discussed that nothing's permanent. Nothing's a permanent state. It, everything keeps moving. And so I think that kind of gave me hope as mm. well yeah. when I was feeling really down or overwhelmed, stressed, upset, anything, um, knowing that this is not going to stay like this. I, I will feel different at some point. And I think actually... Um, let me just get it right in my head. But a formula that he gave me is um, pain times resistance equals suffering. So if I'm in pain, let's say at a 10, but and I'm, you know, resisting at a 10, my suffering is going to be 100. Yeah. But if my resistance is zero, then my suffering is zero. And although, you know, there's probably variances in there, but to me that gave it a very practical, tangible kind of... Brilliant kind of steps for me to take if I was feeling a certain way. So when did you see the evidence of this work that you were doing, the habits, some of the reflections that you were doing? When did you start to see some of the seeds of that begin to blossom? Hmm. I think probably in 2015, I was playing a small challenger circuit. I was also working with a, a coach who worked with Esteban called Jose Manuel Garcia, and he would sometimes come on trips with me. And we were together in um, the US playing on green clay. Um, it was the kind of the prep circuit on the ITF tour for French Open. And we were playing 25s, 25s and maybe a $50,000 tournament in Jackson, Mississippi and in uh, Birmingham, Alabama yeah. and Dothan, Alabama, I think the place was called. And I remember just playing that whole trip just really grateful and really just kind of in a yeah in a very sincerely grateful way of just being able to be there mm. and just to be able to step on court and being healthy and enjoying the sunshine and and just really looking at these you know lovely little like clubs that we were playing at like how great is this yeah. how and I think that's when I really felt like I took just a, a like a really big breath and just kind of, oh, this is really great. And if it never changes from this, if this is if this is all I get in, in kind of the hierarchy of tennis, then my God, yeah. I'm so lucky. And I think it was that kind of just real deep appreciation for kind of what I was doing. Just, it it just brought me joy. Brilliant. It just, it, it, it really, I just started being very happy. Um, and that was actually, to be fair, not too long before I'd, I then qualified for the first time at the French Open and it was then that kind of back end of that summer that I I went on a, a decent winning streak. I won the 100K in Vancouver and then mm. qualified and made second round, second week of so the US. So then when you started going to the big Opens and the French Open, yeah. how much 
did you manage to still retain that attitude of gratitude, that that appreciation of what you were experiencing there? I think I still managed to to bring that. I think I think through a bit of naivety as well. Um, I didn't. I'd, I'd never really experienced the big tournaments, big stages. I'd played, you know, a, a couple rounds here, and I'd qualified once before at the U.S. Open. So. I dabbled, I'd say, but I, I wasn't, it wasn't my routine stomping ground. It wasn't kind of my, my week in, week okay. out. So I, I, I went into those tournaments feeling very trusting of, of the team that I had. I felt very grateful for the people that I had around me. And I think that definitely gave me a lot of strength at that time when I maybe didn't have my own to draw from as much. I think I, I I did, but maybe a little bit cautiously, a bit nervously, kind of, oh, this is yeah. but, but it's okay, like this, like so, kind of, almost like not, not fully like opening myself. Oh, this is amazing, kind of thing to yeah. that bit. I think that came comes also with time. I think on different stages. Yeah, <laughs> that's fascinating. And I assume that Juan actually was really helpful for you then away from tennis because what he hasn't done is told you how to play a better backhand or how to be better at the net. This is. These are life lessons that he was really giving you. No, exactly. Um, and it wasn't just even for me. It was at the time he was also doing he was doing work with my parents. Uh, I think oh, it was to understand okay. the dynamic of kind of a whole mindset and whole whole kind of you know struggles. That it's 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 also in the family. It's it's it's. I wasn't the only one on that journey. My parents yeah. were as well, and they had their own you know, things that, that, that they struggled with or, or they needed to understand. And, mm. and I know he helped them a lot in in perspective and, and kind of also understanding what I was going through. So he, it was it was a very nurturing environment. It was very holistic. It, it wasn't about performance. It was yeah. about living. It was about being a rounded human being. And I suppose in some ways it does it's, you know, I know, of course, all that really matters is winning games of tennis. But actually, when he improves that side of your life, it takes the pressure off the results because you're not getting your happiness from winning games of tennis anymore. He's teaching you the tools for happiness, whatever the situation, whatever the tournament, whatever the result. No, exactly. It was it was life lessons. It was it was about teaching me to yeah find joy in my life regardless of tennis because there is going to be a life after tennis as well and that's actually a lot longer hopefully knock on wood <laughs> than than life before and i think it was it was just that understanding of me as a human being is actually that is what make what gives me a chance to be a tennis player but that that is actually who you have to nurture to give the tennis player even a chance so we get lots of parents listening to this podcast and joe so what what was the big difference you noticed in your parents when they started to receive this advice I think kind of like me, I think there was a period where they also just kind of took a deep breath as well. Um, you know, it's a very it's a very high stress environment where everyone's really trying so hard to achieve one goal. And mm. it's kind of like giving they also, I think, found a way to give themselves some space from how I was doing or, you know, my tennis. And they kind of I think they saw the people that I was surrounded by and they chose to trust them. And they, I think that gave them some peace as well, some peace and quiet probably within themselves as yeah. well. Um, yeah, it was, it was just that perspective and deep breath and perspective is actually really, a really useful tool. <laughs> yeah. So, so take me into like the dynamic of say after a loss or a defeat, how did your parents then start to treat you in those moments? 
I think it started becoming um, more about the effort again, more about did I try my best? Yeah. I did. Well, then we, we keep going, we keep trying. And less about judgment, right. um, more about opportunity, I think, less about kind of insecurities, more about kind of a plan and then and, and knowing what we're working on and, and kind of seeing seeing the progress in little things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was they bought into the whole process of learning and, and becoming better and trusted that if it was going to give me success, it will, and and give that time. Because that's powerful, because you hear a lot of like horror stories of some of the parents of young prodigies on the tennis circuit that have sacrificed everything like your parents did, but then become fixated on the outcome. So how did that help you, the fact that your parents then started to engage in the process rather than worrying about the outcome? Um, I mean, I think, quite frankly, if, if they didn't go on that journey with me, I probably wouldn't have been able to make it, because... I needed their help and their guidance for me to be able to do it as yeah. well because we we were in this together and and it was I was 24 but I was very young I was you know I'd I'd only ever lived at home albeit I you know I traveled the world a lot and so you know it was still at the kind of end stages of me growing up and starting yeah. to become more of an adult mm. but it's kind of we needed to do this together for us to have a better relationship kind of on the court to do with tennis but also off it so I yeah I couldn't have done it without them also committing to it and they wouldn't have been able to do that without the help of Juan Cotto um, and the real tragedy here for people that are listening to this that don't know the story of your relationship with Juan was that he sadly took his own life and I, I wonder how difficult that was for you personally because when someone's giving you life advice, you look at them and think, wow, if only I was as sorted as you are, if only if I knew all the things that you know, I would have had a very different path to here. Um, you know, it's hard to know what to ask, really, but that is a very hard thing for you to compute, I'd imagine. Yeah, I mean, you know, what's interesting, I think, I think actually people that give the best advice and, and actually really understand something is because they have personal experience mm. and I knew that he had struggled with his own his own thoughts and his own his own emotional mental well-being before and he'd spoken about that with me um and and I think it was kind of that journey for himself that he he saw the power in 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 thinking in the mind in 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 emotion and I think you know, I mean, how incredibly passionate he was about helping people. Yeah. I think the two together made into an incredible human being. And, you know, it, yeah, I mean, yeah, no, I, yeah, no, he was amazing. Yeah, I bet. And I suppose the irony is without his own personal struggles, he wouldn't have been in the position to help people like you and to transform people's lives. And, you know, we've all we've all lost people close to us. I think that perhaps the lessons that he gave you live longer and live stronger for the fact that he's no longer here to to see them. Um, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd love if he was still here. I think yeah. the lessons will still be just as strong, but um, for reasons we you know we don't know, life yeah. turned out the way it did. And um, but I know that he he would he would be very proud in in i think 
knowing that the things that he was teaching people, not just myself, but he touched a lot of people's lives, are still giving guidance and and mm. bringing joy to people. And and I think he, I think that would make him very happy. Uh, and you work hard to remember the things he taught you because we had a guest on called uh, Joe Malone who created the perfume brand. Yeah. She had a cancer diagnosis and she said that when she had the diagnosis, she she was going to change the way she lived. And then after she recovered, she found that the lessons, she said, slipped through my fingers like sand and she couldn't catch them anymore. What do you do now to remember the lessons that Juan taught you to make sure that they don't slip through your fingers? Well, I think because of the way he he taught me and the way he guided me it was a very practical way it was me doing the work it was it was routine and and because i figured it out for myself in the end with his help actually the biggest gift that he gave is that the work is mine the the result is mine the mm. the experience is mine and therefore i can i always have the ability to think back on it and yeah. create space to really okay what did I what what have I learned and that's the gift he gave me it's actually he didn't do it for me he guided me in a way that I could do it for myself and that means that it's a part of me and it, it's not something that I'll lose I think it was kind of yeah, that, that was powerful. <laughs> ready to pop the question the jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Can I ask a question that I've asked a number of guests on this? How much improvement, if you had to put a figure on it, do you think working on the psychology and the mental side of your sport gave you? Um, I think for me it was a massive part because for me I think I I was always relatively gifted as an athlete. I've got a good physique for what I do. I've I've got good genes in that sense. You know, I I I, I think I have a I have the ability to work hard. I so. I had fundamentals that could make me a good athlete, could make me a good tennis player. Um, and I think that got me to a certain point. Um, but I think without 
that mental aspect on 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 just helping me to deal with my own crap really yeah. <laughs> without that opportunity I, I don't think I would have I would have gone from A to B I think I would have been stuck where I was so when you're now at the big opens and things like that I imagine that most people have got a similar level of fitness strength their their technique is relatively similar how much then do you think the mental side of tennis decides who gets into those later rounds yeah I mean I think it's a big part of what we do it's a big part of our sport of most sports um but our matches can be long it's a bit of chess it's a bit of so you know, I 100% I think it's it's a part of, but I think it's the mental side is kind of like a forehand or a backhand. It's an, it's another part that everyone's looking to maximize and everyone is becoming more and more self-aware, knowing their triggers or knowing um, kind of, okay, how do I react in these situations? Yeah. Okay, what, what thoughts can I think on to help me kind of stay stay in the moment, stay, stay grounded, stay present, kind of everyone's starting to become aware. So it's actually becoming less of a factor okay. just because I think more people are aware of it. So it starts becoming the Intr- 1% yeah, in, yeah, in kind of, it's, it's starting to become another shot essentially, I yeah. think. It's a good point out though, when not many people are doing it, focusing on the mental yeah, side yeah. of something is really valuable. It's revolutionary. When everyone's that. doing it, you have to be extra good at that to be any better, don't you? But then the reason that I asked that question is because I read the quote that said that, that you didn't have huge levels of emotional control in those early days. You didn't almost have a plan B when times got tough. So how do you spot now that maybe you're starting to lose emotional control that could potentially cost you a game or that you need to change a game plan? I think now it's knowing myself better. I think think part of, I guess, losing emotional control or... I think a part of that is also immaturity. Do you agree um, with those? Not necessarily, not fully. Yeah. Um, just because I think a lot of it is context. A lot of it is is also it's understanding what's going on, and and people lose their shit kind of every every, yeah. every day in different walks of life. And the only thing that's different is being in a heightened state yep. in front of loads of people. Mm. It becomes kind of that much more like whoa. She's really kind of lost her head. Um, and it's not always the case, I think. Um, I, I I don't like it when I think, you know, you hear these hyperbolic words of like kind of they've completely lost control. They're, you know, they're, they're out of it or, you know, let things happen, let things move. Um, but for sure, for me personally, I needed to find a space where I, could channel and could start re reorganizing my thoughts when I became stressed yeah. or when I became so-called emotional. So how do you do that then? Perspective. Um, that's where actually perspective became a big part of actively doing it during matches. It was kind of taking a step back and seeing the sun shining. My family loves me. I'm out here. I'm getting a good tan. Yeah. I, yeah. you know, I, I, I'm, you know, staying physically fit. I, I get to do something that I love. What's the problem? And you'll run through that in your head, will you, during the match, in between the more serve so, or in between yeah, the set so or whatever? Then, yeah. I think less so now, just because it, I think it's maybe become a little bit more oiled, a little bit easier. Yep. Yep. Um, but yeah, then I would. I would actually just really go through different things like just kind of gratefulness and perspective. 
So do you remember a few years ago when Andy Murray brought out a letter that he'd written to himself of all his strengths and characteristics I, I think and I people do, yeah. saw that? Do you have anything like that, any props or anything to help you trigger that that sense of perspective? No, no, but back actually, back in 2016 in um, at the Australian Open at the time, uh, at the top of tennis rackets on the top of the grip there's that little band that kind of holds the sticky tape in place that holds the grip kind mm. of in place and I, I got to have like different type different colors of that little kind of band thing and it had different words on there and it had like play it had love it had power it had um, focus and actually that to me really I really enjoyed and I would purposely choose a different one for each match that I played at the Australian Open that year and I kind of would look at it sometimes and think you know what I I can practice like this is something I can use like I just kind of so I don't know if that answers your question but I just remember that kind of felt like it's perfect yeah it's actually a good reminder that you know people think that to change your mindset or to get control of your brain is a really big job and it's nigh on impossible. The reality is it can be something as simple as looking at a colour, looking at a word, looking at the sunshine, thinking about your parents. Little things can have such a huge impact, can't they? No, I think so. And I think, you know, it's again coming back to that realisation that whatever difficulty you're facing, whatever heaviness you have, it's not permanent. It can change. Mm. And actually all the tools that you need are within you or in your environment. And it can be sight, sounds, smells, your own kind of feel. Like you know, you have the ability to to live through it and and to to go through it and and change it. And yeah. From my conversation, I get the sense that one of your frustrations is people passing judgment on a match you've played or the way a match has gone. I mean, we have to accept we live in a world of no nuance, right? So you are either brilliant or awful there's nothing in between let's just accept that that is the way the world works these days have you learned to not fight against people casting judgment over what happened during a match when they have basically no idea what happened because they weren't out on the court or um do you just accept it now how how, how do you deal with those things do you fight them um no i i i don't i i understand what it is and and the place it has i think as a, as a logical person, I get that. I think when it becomes difficult is when you're tired, when you're feeling vulnerable, when you're feeling sad, that's when that's when it's harder to do. It's harder to practice that practical mm-hmm. mind and that's when that's when it can affect you. That's when it can kind of creep in and and kind of jab you a little bit and 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 that's when you take it on. Um, so yes, I I know how to deal with it and and I get it. Do, does it always happen that I, I deal with it that way? No. Sometimes I I get upset by it. Sometimes I cry about the injustice of it. Sometimes, um, or sometimes I don't care. Sometimes yeah. it's fine. Sometimes, well, everyone's entitled to their opinion, but sometimes it's how dare they have that opinion. So, you know, I think it's also on what state you're in and kind of how much things are affecting you. But again, perspective. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, as, as you probably know, I work, you know, as a sports presenter, like what are the questions or what are the things that we should be doing when it comes to people like you that educate the audience better rather than just guessing that you've lost your shit or you've, you know, you've mentally collapsed or whatever. What should we be asking people like you to really understand what goes on in, in games and in events? 
Um, I think it's individual, but I think it's more listening to what we say. I think for me, it's, I actually do try consciously to give an insight, not just for the journalists, but for the people who are reading the pieces. And I, I do try to actually get my personality across, my my beliefs across, my thought process across, like kind of what, who am I as a player? Who am I as a person? And I think I think what's more most frustrating maybe is when the answer you give, they don't like or they want something different. And it's more the case of, well, I can't give you anything different because this is who I am. And so work with me then because I can't, I can't be anything other than me. And I think it's, I think it's more that that's for me is where my frustration more comes from is I'm trying to, I'm trying to let you know Mm. who I am, you know, play ball with me here. Um, Because I, I like talking. I like sharing my experiences. I, I've been very open in, in the work that I've done with Juan, with, with, with you know people in the mm. past especially on the mental side and i think i don't i don't have any hang-ups about sharing well there's eight-year-old johanna conta's living somewhere in the world dreaming of being the world number one so <laughs> the lessons that you can share you know are only a good thing it's been a really interesting sort of journey to go from running up hills with your dad to leaving home to crying with your mum because your career wasn't going the way you wanted to having your eyes open by juan to actually the fact that the power is all yours and then we get to the point where suddenly like you're in the top five best tennis players in the world and you are the British number one and you are in that place that you dreamed of as a little kid carrying the hopes of an entire nation at Wimbledon. Was it all you hoped it would be? Oh, uh, yes and no. Yes, it is lots of people around you. Yes, it is um, exciting. But actually you go home and it's very normal. Yeah. So it's not... It's not everything you thought it would be. It's actually a lot better because it's just your life and it's normal and it's nothing actually changes. And I remember actually in 2017, because I think that's what you're referring to, yeah. Um, I remember playing the ta- the matches and I remember feeling nervous or stressed or it was difficult. And I remember kind of, you know, looking up in the stands and just looking at my boyfriend there and thinking, well, actually, after this, we'll go home and you'll still love me and whatever happens here. And, and you know, it was kind oh. of that normality of of kind of being with that. And I think that's why it's actually so much better than what you dream of. For me, it was anyway, yeah. just because it's just normal. <laughs> and that's when you were playing some of your best ever tennis. So it shows that you don't have to be struggling. Johnny Wilkinson spoke on this podcast about he thought that struggling would lead to success and he realised that struggling just leads to more struggling. And yes. this is really interesting. That just as you were at the absolute peak, you weren't having to struggle. You were kind of free. Yeah. No, I think I was. And I think actually my, I would call it my biggest year of freedom probably was in 2019. Um, and that's when I started working with Dimitri Zabialov and he's been an incredible influence on my life. And the you know, perspectives than he started bringing into then my tennis and kind of, again, giving me the kind of the, the control of how do you want to play? What mm. do you want to do out there? Kind of the what choices do you want to make and trust those choices that, you know, if they don't pay dividends, then who knows in how, how they pay dividends in other parts of the match. It was kind yeah. of understanding that, you know, 
there's no right or wrong there's there's you know things again keep moving but yeah and actually that year I played I played very free that year so what you're describing there what Dimitri is doing is the idea of guided discovery that is allowing you to answer the questions he's just posing them which sounds obvious in many ways how common is that approach within your world I think it's very uncommon uncommon Uh, I'd say it's uncommon um because it because it takes trust and faith in in I think a path less kind of walked less Mm. discovered you know there's there's still a lot of a lot of success and a lot of a, a lot of good things in in the kind of you do what you're told you know there's a lot of good co- coaches out there who who've worked with a lot of great players who together they've they've done that but I I don't function like that and I think it's all very individual so for me this kind of work this way of working is actually I, th- I think the only way I can perform I can bring the best out of myself so for me it was very important but no it's not common Wow, because it sounds very similar to the approach that your dad took when you first declared that you wanted to get up at five o'clock in the morning yes. and run. That you're you're dictating the terms and yeah. conditions rather than somebody's got a stick and beating you to get yeah. out there. Yeah, and I, and who knows? Maybe there's there's you know there's some subconscious kind of way of that's how I was wired when I was young. So maybe that's why that kind of working as an adult works for me. I don't know, but. I didn't think of that. So yes, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> it all comes it back. All comes yeah. 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 But I suppose I'm kind of thinking that the Johan Conte that's sitting in front of us today is so different to the 21, 22 year old who was totally outcome focused. Yeah. You're probably realising now that actually the outcome is it's the journey, not the outcome, right? Yeah. No, 100%. And I think that was actually one of the biggest things that I, I wrote always consistently is I, I, you know, I'm committed to the process. I'm enjoying the process and and the outcome will be what it will be. Mm. It's not that it's kind of here. Yeah. And I think actually my fitness trainers said this and I probably won't use the, ex- I can't remember the exact words, but it was basically along the lines of, you know, there's winning and losing and the highs and the lows, but actually then there's living. Mm. You know, we live every day and, and it's it's make that living purposeful and enjoyable and and you want to come to work with the people that you enjoy working with and because you know winning losing it's kind of here there it's it's high it's low it's but in between all that there's actually just living every day and is that quite scary when you've spent a whole life being focused on on the goal on the outcome someone actually sent you no, no, no let's not think about winning the tournament let's just think about enjoying playing in the tournament because whether it's a CEO or a teacher or a parent listening to this, to shift their mindset away from the the result is, I think, is scary. Yes, but actually, to me, it was liberating. I needed it. I think I was starved for it. I needed because I was doing it one way, and it wasn't making me happy. It wasn't making me successful. It it, it was actually making me downright miserable. It was making my parents miserable. Like it was. It, it wasn't working. So actually, what was the harm for me? For me, it was, why not? And and I just took to it because I, I, I understood it. I understood it very quickly and I could see it, like kind of what joy could bring me. And then, hey, I'm happy. Why? You know, what's there to, to kind of complain yeah. about? <laughs> so can you tell us about the transferability of, of that mindset, though, about letting go of the result and focusing on the process to a world outside of tennis? 
Um, I think it's completely transferable because I've used it in different things. So, you know, for me, getting used to even this, for example, you know, I probably would get more nervous before than I would now um, just because I understand that I will come here, I will do the best that I can and I will I will enjoy speaking to you both and the result will be what it will be and I will fit, keep my fingers crossed that, you know, I give you guys a good episode, but at the end of the day I can only be myself and I can only do the best that I can. So I think it's that that you can apply in in anything and I was actually the other day I, I just did um, Sunday brunch and I was really nervous before right. going on I, I I don't know why but I felt very very nervous and again it's just that same process of okay I'm here I'm on time I've I've done everything that I can I will go out there I'll be kind I'll be happy and we'll see what happens <laughs> I think this episode will be okay don't you <laughs> I think it'll be exceptional <laughs> Um, we've reached the point of our quickfire questions that we always finish the podcast with. Um, First of all, the three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you have to buy into. Respectful. Mm -hmm. Um, I think being honest, honesty, that's the word, honesty, and communication. Do you communicate? What advice would you give to a teenage Johanna just starting out? I, I wish I learnt earlier on to just be grateful and be patient and and look at the world more broadly, look at my career more broadly. I think, you know, it's very narrow, it's very all all encompassing kind of stop and smell the roses kind of thing. Yeah. Lovely. Stop and smell the roses. <laughs> very good. Um, could you give one book recommendation for our high performance family to to have a read of it's uh winning not fighting no yeah winning not fighting by john vincent <laughs> excellent why why does that book work for you um i actually just started it to be honest and i'm just really interested in in reading kind of the philosophy that i've bought into but a different take on it um because it's not maybe quite word for word mm. what i kind of maybe learned but it's definitely along the same lines or, or certain bits that I've read, for, like they are definitely, so it's it's just nice to hear how someone else has also practically used it in their life. Very good. What's your one golden rule for a high performance life? I think practicing joy, practicing gratefulness. I think that gives you the chance to be your best self and therefore your best chance of being successful. Brilliant, and there is one more. This is the final, final yes. question. What is your biggest strength? And what is your biggest weakness? My biggest strength, I I don't know about myself. My biggest strength is um, I laugh a lot. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's that's helped me in a lot of different things. Um, my biggest weakness is probably being able to take a break. Mm. I that's taken some time for me to know kind of when to apply myself, but when to also kind of take a bit of space nurture myself, take some time off. Um, that's something that I've I've had to learn and continue to learn. Brilliant. Look, uh, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. <laughs> thank you. Um, and especially for opening up and talking to us about Juan, which I, I know wouldn't have been um, very easy for you. But I think that like, to get from the eight-year-old to being a professional tennis player, right, you had to be all in. You kind of, at that point, you had to totally be all about the outcome. Um, and I think 
what's been really powerful in this conversation is sharing with us the journey from being outcome focused to process focused and it's worked for you in a tennis sense but i really hope that for everyone listening to this it works for them in the sense of their own lives as well thank you thank you no thank you for having me (laughs) damien jake another really interesting interview you know what um I think people listen to this and they're looking for really huge things that could could be said that will change their lives and alter the way they see the world. What Johanna has just basically said there is that a tiny detail, focusing on the process, gaining perspective, can change everything. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think just to take us with her onto the centre court at Wimbledon and remember to look around and see a boyfriend and remember that in a couple of hours time you'll be back at home together and everything will be normal or appreciate just the sun shining on your back at any stage there are techniques that any of us can appreciate at any moment just the ability to live in the moment and stop worrying about the outcome and just focus on the moment that we're in and also i think um don't underappreciate just how important those little things can be and there will definitely be people listening to this now going you put up a slogan at work, is it really going to change the way people think? Or you write a little note in your notebook, is that really going to alter the way someone operates daily? We've just had someone who is the best tennis player in Britain, was number four in the world, and at that time had the word love or appreciation or power or focus written on her tennis racket. And at times of struggle, just looked at that word and that was enough for her to push through, persevere and win that game of tennis. If you can use that technique at the absolute highest echelon in world sport, everyone can use it. Absolutely. It's like just a, like a trigger that just prompts you to connect with the emotions, the thoughts, the feelings that you have when you're happy, when you're experiencing what uh, what, you, what Joe described as her golden rule, just joy. Any moments that connect you to that, I've got to then help you feel better and ultimately perform better. She reminded me quite a lot of Johnny Wilkinson, the way she spoke when he came on the podcast. Yeah, I thought it was fascinating. Johnny came to some of those realisations at the end of his career and I found what fascinating, what Joe shared was she's discovered it halfway through her career and that's what's propelled her to the heights that she's reached. It's interesting because I think a lot of professional sports people would think, well, I can't, I can't have that growth mindset now. I'm too focused on being a sports person the growth mindset is what's made her a successful sports person and when you sit and have a conversation like we did with her I mean clearly her parents were were brilliant the way that they inspired her and pushed her but then I think she probably did go into this quite dark and difficult period of struggling with her tennis and her tennis was what was defining her now it's clearly not what defines her so I kind of get the sense that she is much better equipped for what lies ahead of her tennis career because you know she will have 40 or 50 years on the earth not being a tennis player and she seems like she's sorted for that period. Absolutely. I think that's a really powerful message that she's not defined by by just what she does out there on the court. She's defined by the person that those experiences have shaping her to be. And she can only realise that by appreciating the process and not the outcome. There'll be hundreds of tennis players out there that will never win an Open, that will never win a tournament. So does that make them lesser people? than the champions well if you focused on the process the answer to that is very clearly not thanks a lot mate thank you mate well i reckon uh, you may well have needed a pen and paper for that i i found it a really emotional conversation at numerous points and i finished that conversation as you heard me saying with damon at the end with a lot to think about but i feel like 
our guest is in such a good place mentally and there's no doubt that if you're a professional athlete over time your physical prowess melts away but if you can make sure that mentally you're you're strong then you're in a good place and I've I left that conversation just feeling excited for her future so um, thank you so much to Yana Conta for coming on the High Performance Podcast and being so so honest with us and sharing so many things that I think some people who are at the their very peak of their careers wouldn't necessarily be willing to share. But once again, it's a reminder of the power of these kinds of conversations where we give it time and we really get to the root of what you at home want to hear so that you can improve your own lives. I'm not sure there's anything else out there like this at the moment. Um, and I'm so grateful that you're all part of the journey with us. Um, if you'd like to get even more from us, of course, we also have a members club called the High Performance Circle. More podcasts, more inspirational talks, more keynote speeches, newsletters, offers, giveaways. It's a great club and it's free to be a member. All you have to do is go to thehighperformancepodcast.com and sign up for the High Performance Circle. So that's it from our Olympic specials. Um, thanks to all of our brilliant guests. And don't forget, you can also roll back into the High Performance Archives because of the six most successful Olympians that Britain has ever produced. Three of them have now been on the podcast. Jason Kenny, Sir Chris Hoy and Tom Daly as well. Um, and I reckon it may well be Sir Tom Daly and Sir Jason Kenny before too long. Right, we're back with another episode next week, but from all of us on the High Performance Podcast, from Hannah, from Will, from Professor Damien Hughes, from myself, Finn Ryan at Rethink Audio, we can't thank you enough for being part of the conversation that we're having right here. Keep your thoughts coming into us. Ping us some messages on Instagram. We love to hear from you. But most of all, take what you've learned, really use it to uplift, build, and push your own life forwards. Have a brilliant High Performance Day. Lots of love. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 